Well, as Jared mentioned this morning, a week from this Wednesday night is our annual meeting, and I hope that if you're a member here at Mount Calvary Church, you're planning to be with us that night. And uh, we have three men who are going off the board who have served the Lord faithfully, and uh, Jay Shear and Dick Root are going off as deacons, and uh, then Dave Schausberger, who's been our treasurer for the last two years, asked that if he could uh, not be back long because of just having a baby. And uh, so we have some candidates that we'd like to present to you. Two are going to give testimonies today and two next week. Next week will be Phil Nelson, uh, who is running for deacon, and Denny Grice, who is running for treasurer. This week, our men who are running for deacons are Joe Dukes and Barry Flores. So we have three men who are running for two positions, and so we're going to ask these two men to share their testimonies with us today. So Joe's coming first. Thank you. I'm Joe Dukes, and my wife is Linda Dukes, and uh, Linda means beautiful, and we are blessed to have two children, a son, a daughter, Melody is our oldest, married to Jordan with uh, Leon and Vincent, our two grandchildren, our son Joe with his wife Natasha and their son Elliot, and um, we met as a result of my going to the Bible Institute at Word of Life with her sister, and we were like brother and sister, and that's how I met Linda and made all my ministry trips through Pennsylvania, though I was going to Indiana or wherever, and uh, God led us together in 79, and um, then we went to England in 81 for 26 years um, with Word of Life and then with BCM. And I'm vice president of personnel with BCM at the present. And um, I was brought up in a Christian home, but that did not make me a Christian. I knew that uh, I knew all the answers. I could have told you all the seven dispensations and everything else, that, but it never made me a Christian. And in fact, I rebelled against that. I went my own way. I trusted in myself. I thought I could just do whatever I wanted. And... I went into a lot of things I never should have got into, but on April 8th, 1975, at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, God saved me by His grace and transformed me and made me into a new creature in Christ. And I'm thankful to, to know Christ as Savior and to be able to serve Him. And if God wills, I'd be happy to, to serve on the board here at Mount Calvary Church and to further the ministry of the gospel here in this place. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Barry Flora, and my wife, his name is Mary. Uh, Mary was the girl next door. She was my neighbor. And uh, I was going with Mary ever since I was 15 years old. And we got married when I was 18. She was 17. Uh, I was not raised in a Christian family. Uh, my mother, as a young child, took me to a Catholic church, which I'm going to stand here and tell you I hated it. For one thing, I didn't understand it. The uh, priest still spoke in Latin up there, so I didn't know what was going on. Uh, my father, you know, many times said, you know, there is no God. My father was an atheist, and at some point, I don't know how old I was, Dad said to Mom, hey, the boys don't have to go to church. And, you know, I got to admit, I was happy about that. Well, when I met my wife, Mary, I mean, she was, you know, raised in somewhat of a Christian home, and every Easter, I'd go to church with her. So I was a once-a-year churchgoer. And, you know, the, the scripture were, you know, Christ said that if it weren't for the Father drawing us to him, we, we, wouldn't, we would not want to be even have nothing to do with him. Well, there was times in my life I, 
I had a strong desire. I always believed in God. I, I, and, of course, going to the Roman Catholic Church, I seen Christ up on the cross. I, I truly didn't know what that was all about. I really didn't. But uh, I can remember there was times in my life I, I had a strong, tremendously strong desire to get to know God. And, you know, I read the Bible, didn't understand it. Uh, I read it several times and didn't, didn't understand it. And I was happened to work with a guy who didn't laugh at the dirty jokes. He didn't go downtown and have a couple beers with us on Friday night. And I kept on saying, why don't you do that? And he would, the only thing he would say was, because the Bible, the Bible says not. He wouldn't quote me any scripture. So, again, it had me opening up the Bible and searching and I read enough to understand that I was a sinner and that I needed Christ as my Savior. One night, about 9 o'clock, Mary was working. I kneeled, you know, at my bed, and I said a prayer. Now you're saying, brother, you mean to tell me you asked Christ in your heart? No, I didn't. I, I didn't do nothing fancy. I, I, I think of myself, what I did that night, as the, the parable, parable in the Pharisee and the publican. I was that publican, you know, and I literally said, God, you know, I'm a sinner. Save me. And I remember saying, I, I can't do this life thing anymore without you, and I need you. And that second that I did that and said that prayer, I can't describe that feeling I had, that burden that left me. Now, folks, that, that feeling I had was not a coincidence. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't emotion. I didn't know it at the time, but that instant I said that prayer, Christ came into my life and took my burdens away, and I thank him for that. Now, when I was asked uh, if I'd go up for nomination for this uh, uh, to be a deacon, my first reaction was, uh, no way, you know, no. But then the Holy Spirit reminded me what I was praying even before 2014 that, you know, God... Would you use me in a greater way in 2014 than you did in 2013? So then I, yeah, the first second, half a second, no. And then on the downside, I said yes. And, and it is my desire, whether or not it's you know, teaching the four and five-year-olds downstairs, coming out every Saturday in referee and whatever. Whatever God will have me do, I want to be willing. And for many years, to my shame, I sat there in the pews and say, hey, I know you, Christ, you know, and I'm willing to do whatever you say, but it seems like my pants are glued to the seat. And there's a point in my life, there's a quote, and I'm going to probably paraphrase this quote, but if you want God to guide your footsteps, you've got to be willing to take that first step. And there's a point in my life I, I took that first step and said, Lord, yes, here am I. Send me, as Isaiah did, use me wherever you want. And, I, and if I am nominated, I would count it a privilege to serve here at Mount Calvary. And thank you all. Thank you, guys. It's always great to hear testimonies of salvation. As our choir comes and the men come to receive our offering this morning, just want to share with you two blessings. Uh, first of all, the first Sunday of this year, we did a, ch a children's message. If you'll remember, some of you were here, some of you weren't. We gave our children 50 cent pieces, and we taught them the importance of being good stewards. And they went out that day, and uh, you gave, from $36, you gave $1,150. 
And I challenged somebody that morning. I said, wouldn't it be great if somebody would take that 1150 and double it? Well, I want to tell you that somebody did that a week ago. And so from $36 for our Brazil missions trip, we have about $2,300 because somebody matched that gift this week. Wasn't that a blessing? Now, better than money, though, better than money, let me tell you something exciting that happened this week. LaVon brought a dear friend to church with her last week, and she's sitting back there. Her name is Ashley. Raise your hand, Ashley. There she is in the back on my left. That's Ashley. She knew I was going to do this this morning. LaVon has been sharing the gospel with her. She's been watering that seed. Last week, they, or Friday, they invited me to come over to the house and Ashley accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Amen. So, so after church, you make sure you see Ashley and shake her hand and just let her know how excited you are. So what better to share with you at the offering time today? Just want to remind you that uh, uh, remember next month in February, we are starting a, a new series called Pick a Parable. And I uh, encourage you, if you haven't already, you can go on our website, and we're giving you an opportunity to vote. And you can choose four out of 12 parables that you would like to hear a sermon on, and we're going to tally all the votes, and we are going to uh, preach through the, the top four choices that you have made. So this is your opportunity to kind of ha have a say in what happens here on a Sunday morning. So I encourage you to, uh, to vote early, vote often, and uh, go online and pick, uh, pick your favorite parable, and we would enjoy uh, very much going through and listening and, and learning what God wants to teach us through those uh, stories uh, that he shared through the gospel. So uh, I encourage you to do that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew ch chapter 26. Uh, for this month of January, we are in a series called Praying Like Jesus. And uh, this is our third uh, sermon on the series. And if you remember, uh, we've been talking about for 2014, kind of our theme for the year is living Pi Squared lives. And that's lives that are, are praying, investing, and inviting. And so as we go through this year, we're going we're gonna to spend some series talking about praying, about investing, and about inviting. And, and our goal is that, that we would look for opportunities to, uh, to pray for, to invest in, and invite uh, people to either come to know Jesus as their personal Savior or grow in their relationship with Him. And so that's kind of our focus for the year. And, and so we're, we're looking at praying, and, and we're looking especially at the master of prayer, Jesus, and what we can learn uh, from him. And, and this morning, we're going to look especially at his prayer in Gethsemane. And, and I call this an excruciating evening. Now, I want you to think about your own life and think about what's the worst night of your life. Can you think about that? Well, what, uh, what's the worst night of your life? Have you, have you experienced a really bad night? As I was thinking about this this week, I can, I can think of different bad nights throughout my stages of life. Uh, in high school, I can think about, you know, a really bad night. Uh, we were playing our, our, um, our arch rivals, the Halifax Wildcats. And, um, and, and I was in 10th grade, and we were down one with a few seconds left. And, and someone took a shot, and I got the rebound and tapped the ball, and the ball rolled around the rim and rolled out. And I remember falling on my knees in the paint, just pounding the floor with my fist so much that it hurt. I know that's pretty rough. That's my, that's a, if, that's, if that's the roughest night of my life, that, that's pretty rough. But in high school, that was a pretty big deal. And then I can remember in college uh, a difficult night that, that my parents shared some news with me and just really struggling through that. 
And as an adult, I was thinking, what's the worst night of my life? And as I was thinking about the worst night of my life as an adult, it's, uh, the worst night of my life was also one of the best nights of my life. It was July, uh, about eight years ago, when Zachary was born. And I remember being very, very excited because we were going to have a son, and I was no longer going to be outnumbered. It was going to be even teams at home, two guys, two girls. And Zachary was born, and he had some complications. He had a cyst on his, on his brain. And I remember there at LGH, him being delivered, and them saying, you know, we, we need to take him to, to, to Hershey, to the NICU. And I remember them loading him up on this, in this little incubator that looks something out of a sci-fi movie and walking behind him and watching them load him on the, the pediatric ambulance and sitting in the cab looking back through the window, watching him thinking, what is going on here? And I can remember getting to the hospital and, and an intern or, 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 or a resident saying, hey, this isn't good. And I'm like, like the world's kind of spinning out of control. I said, you know, he, he, might, be, he might be developmentally challenged and, and have all these problems. And I was thinking, wow, this is, this, is, this is bad. And I'm thankful that through God's graciousness, uh, he gave us a great doctor who had seen this before and did the operation. And Zachary's as normal as any seven-year-old boy can be. And that's not too normal. But, uh, but, but, uh, but, uh, but, but I can remember that night and just the difficulty of that night and just wondering what is going to happen. And I'm sure you can, exp- you can all ref- reflect on a night that was just really, really difficult. And here as we look in Matthew 26, I think we're looking at one of the most difficult nights of Jesus' life. I think, it's a, I think it's a difficult night for him. And, and just some background of what's happening here this, this week. It's Thursday evening of the Passover week. And Jesus had just celebrated the Passover at the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus' three years of ministry were completed. He preached his last sermon. He performed his last miracle. Friday is almost here, and the cross is quickly approaching, where he would die as the ultimate Passover lamb, the perfect and permanent sacrifice for the sins of the world. So that's kind of the background of where we are in, in, this, in this final week of Jesus. It's Thursday night, and, and, and Friday is coming where he's going to go to the cross. And as we look at this passage here in Matthew 26, we're going to look at three major parts of the passage. And first, we're going to look at Jesus' pain. Um, you know, this really lets us in exactly of what Jesus is going through as the reality of the cross nears. Look at verses 36 to 38. It says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So as I read those, those few verses, it's clear that Jesus is, the, is in the garden and he's grieving. He's grieving for what is about to happen. The verses tell us that Jesus went with his disciples. He's with his 11 disciples and they're headed to the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. And I can imagine there's some confusion and apprehension among those disciples as they travel to, to the garden. At the Last Supper, Jesus had predicted that one of them, Judas, would betray him, and he left the meal. 
to start the preparations. After the supper, uh, Jesus tells them that they will all deny Jesus. And Peter, their fearless leader, would even disown him three times that evening. So Jesus is sharing some difficult things with his disciples, and and I can imagine there's some apprehension among them as they travel with Jesus to the garden, trying to figure out what's going on here. And they go to Gethsemane. And Gethsemane simply means the olive press, and it was believed to be a private olive garden or olive grove uh, that Jesus was allowed to use as as a place for personal retreat and prayer. It's a place that Jesus obviously had gone to before, where he went to get alone. And so he he travels to Gethsemane with with his disciples, and he tells them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And judging from from the text, it's it's probably true that uh, the garden had had a wall or fence around it. And he tells his disciples, hey, stay here by the entrance or the gate while I go in. And, and, and spend some time in prayer. It says, then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. So he leaves the, the eight disciples, the other eight disciples at the, at the entrance, and he takes those three with him. These men were the core of the group, the leaders of the disciples, and Jesus routinely took time to invest in them. Perhaps Jesus was using this as a teaching moment, that when they face tough times and trouble, they need to pause and pray for strength and for wisdom. And so he takes those three, those three closest to him, into the garden, and he, sa- and, and he says these things. He, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is deeply distressed here. Jesus is, 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 is troubled, and, and, and he's, he's, uh, he's voicing his emotions. Uh, Mark Driscoll says this, how is Jesus feeling? He's feeling sorrowful. He's feeling troubled to his depths, to his death. Luke twenty two forty four gives us an additional bit of insight. It says that Jesus was filled with such anguish that he was literally sweating blood. This is an extreme medical condition that's only possible for those who are experiencing the most devastating distress humanly possible. Very few people ever get to that point. No matter how hard life gets, no matter how dark and painful, very few of us will ever arrive at the place that Jesus was when he uttered the Gethsemane prayer. Jesus is really, really troubled and distressed. This is a difficult time for him. And he says to his disciples, after he communicates that he is distressed, he says, stay here and keep watch with me. And so in essence, he's encouraging his disciples, hey, you know what, I'm going to go in there and pray, and you stay and pray for me too. You stay and pray too. So Jesus is, is in the midst of all of this pain, and, and as I was thinking about what he was going through, I was thinking there's two real reasons I think Jesus is, is troubled here. And the first reason is because he realizes the personal sacrifice that he's going to have to make. He realizes the personal sacrifice. The cross is imminent. Jesus, the God-man, although tempted, never sinned. 
he always understood that his personal mission was to come to the earth to rescue us from our sin by taking all the sins of the world on himself, by dying on the cross, and three days later rising again, conquering death. However, at this moment, the price of our redemption is becoming very real. The cost for us to be forgiven is weighing heavily on his life. He was totally holy and hated sin, yet he was going to take on all the sin of the world and die in our place to pay the price for it. He who eternally enjoyed the personal fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit was going to be alone and estranged from them because he was going to take on our sin. Jesus understood the sacrifice required for our redemption. And that was weighing on him. That was causing him some distress. And so I think that's why he was, he was experiencing some pain because of the personal sacrifice. But I think the other reason was because of personal disappointments. Jesus was the God-man, and as God, he understood the eternal plan, the prophecies that need to be fulfilled, and the price that our, our salvation would personally cost him. But as a man, he also had earthly emotions to process and work through. And as the events of the week before the cross unfolded, I can imagine he faced many disappointments. And in his humanness, I think he would have dis been disheartened by a few things. First of all, he would have been discouraged by the crowd. A few days earlier, the crowd showed up to give him the hero's welcome, and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, God save us. They gave him the king's welcome, and a few days later, this same crowd would shout, crucify him. How quickly they turned. I think he would have been disappointed in in the crowd. I think you've been disappointed in Judas. Judas spent three years of ministry with Jesus, watching him perform every miracle, hearing him teach the truth. He invested heavily in his life, and the return he got for that investment was to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He sold Jesus out to the religious leaders for four months' wages. I think he would have been disappointed by Judas' betrayal. I think he would have been disappointed with the disciples. He clearly communicates to his disciples that not only would they celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, but he would be handed over to be crucified. And then, and then at the Last Supper, he tells them, after all that they have gone through, after they have done life together day after day, you guys are going to disown me. You're going to desert me. You're going to turn your backs on me. I think that would have been disheartening for Jesus. And finally, I think it had been discouraged by Peter. Peter is in Jesus' inner circle with James and John. He was certainly the vocal uh, one of the group. He was the spokesman of the group. Peter seems to be the leader of leaders. And it seems that Jesus spent some special time building into his life. And that's why it's probably especially disappointing for Jesus to tell Peter that though he was the leader of this ragtag revolution, 
that he would deny him three times that evening. And though, G- and though Peter said, you know what, I would rather die with you, Jesus, we know, in fact, he does before the rooster crows, disowns Jesus three times. You see, as Jesus is here in the garden, he's praying, and, he, and I think he is experiencing some amazing pain. Understanding the personal sacrifice required so we can have a relationship with God. And understanding the personal disappointment of all those people that he spent time with and built into their lives who thought that loved him and and were with him to turn their backs on him and disown him. And the reality is pain is a real part of life. I don't know anyone that gets to experience a pain-free life. And unfortunately today, there's a lot of people in our world that claim the name of Christ that have some messed up theology. They do. Uh, They simply say something like this, that, you know what, if you trust God, everything will be fine. Or if you have enough faith in God, you'll never experience difficulty or disappointment. You know, Jesus never promised that. He didn't experience that in his life, and he never promised that. He never promised us a, a life free of heartache and hurt. He just promised that he would be with us when we experience those things, uh, that he would go with us and help us navigate those things. Uh, I came across this quote this week from Mark, Mark Driscoll, and he said, Christianity is not a religion that gets you around pain. It's a relationship that gets you through it. Isn't that so true? I mean, we, we don't live in pain-free lives, and, 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 the good, and oftentimes we look at pain as a bad thing, but sometimes God uses that pain for our own good. In the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of those darkest night of our lives, we are not alone. God is there to help us navigate the pain, help us to get through it, and hopefully help us to grow through it. So we're not promised a pain-free life, and we see Jesus wasn't free from a life of pain. We, we see he's experiencing a lot of pain here in the garden, and that pain leads him to pray. It leads him to the next part of this passage, and, and, and we see that Jesus prays. And there's, there's three different parts of Jesus' prayer that I, that I noticed as we went through this, uh, this week's studying. In verse 39, it says, Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. So we see that Jesus went a little further. He left uh, Peter, James, and John behind, and he went on his own to communicate with his God, to have a conversation with his heavenly Father, to spend some quality time with him. And it says he fell on his face and prayed. This is a posture of submission. He wanted to communicate with his loving dad, and and, and he fell on his face humbly before his heavenly Father. It's an outward expression of an inner reality driven by his humble and obedient heart. And so first, as Jesus went to pray, I notice his posture. He humbly goes before his father to have a conversation. I think that's important. And then he he mentions some petitions. And petition number one there is at the end of verse 39. It says, when Jesus says, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And so, so he, said, he, he, he cries out to his father with petition number one. 
And he talks about this cup. The cup symbolizes the suffering Jesus would experience on the cross. The cup of God's wrath against all the sin of mankind, which Jesus would willingly take upon himself as the spotless, sacrificial lamb of God. The cup of God's wrath, the cup of, uh, that, that we deserve because of our sin. And he prays and he says, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Hear Jesus' prayer. He was asking God if avoiding the cross was possible according to God's redemptive purpose and rescue plan for man. He just simply cries out to God, God, is it possible? Can we redeem them some other way? Is it possible? The reality of becoming sin was beginning to be agonizing. And Jesus was praying, asking, could there be another way to deliver mankind from the penalty of their sin and rebellion? So Jesus is communicating what's really on his heart. But his prayer just didn't end with that phrase. He goes on and, and he ends his prayer, yet not as I will, but as you will. In spite of the inner turmoil and temptation to take an easier way, Jesus prays that he would obediently follow God's way. If you remember last week, we talked a little bit about prayer, and we said proper prayer is aligning our will with God's will. It's aligning our will with God's will. It's not me telling God what to do. It's me accepting what God has called me to do. It's not me changing God. It's God changing me. And and when Jesus ends his prayer, not, not my will, but your will, that's what he's doing. He's saying, God, align my will with your will. Align my will with your will. I want to do what you want me to do. I'm not here to tell you what to do. And so in Jesus' prayer, we see two important pieces. He honestly and respectfully speaks to God about his feelings and his desires. But he prays for God's will to be done. In essence, what Jesus says to God in that intimate moment, hey, God, this is how I feel. Honestly, you know, I know you're my father. I know, you're, you know your will is best, but this is how I feel. But no matter what, I will follow you. This is how I feel, but I will follow you. That's what Jesus was praying here in his first petition. But he goes on and 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 we see him praying again. In petition number two, in verse 42, it says he went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And here in this second prayer, Jesus is not asking if avoiding the cross is possible. He recognizes the cross is required, and he's resolved to fulfill the plan of redemption. That's what he's saying there. You know, he says, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. God, I know your plan is perfect, and I'm all in. I'm all in. I know what it costs. I know what, what, what's necessary of me, but I am all in. May your will be done. Jesus is acknowledging God's sovereignty and submitting to his service. That's what he's doing here in this prayer. And by repeating this prayer, Jesus is embracing his calling so he can faithfully engage in fulfilling it. And you know what? Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we need to pray for things more than once. Because sometimes the words come out of our mouth, but we really don't believe it in our heart, do we? 
Sometimes we, we, we pray a, a great prayer, but we don't believe or don't want to do it. And, and so sometimes we've got to pray things more than once. And if God is, is using prayer to change us, and it, it's going to take some persistent, uh, persistent prayer on our part to accept it and to act on it. I was thinking a little bit about this this week, that, you know what, uh, as we go through scriptures, God gives us a lot of commands that he wants us to follow. And, and it's easy to read those commands, and it's hard to do those commands. And so sometimes we just really need to pray those commands over and over again so God will align our will with his will and enable us to fulfill that will. And, and this week on Thursday morning at, at Ironman, we were talking about uh, Matthew 16, 24, and 25. And Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. We're all familiar with those verses. We've read those time and time again, but you know what? That's something that I need to pray more than once. That's something that I should pray every day because I am selfish and I want to do what I want to do. And from those verses, it's clear that God wants me to be selfless and to follow his plan and not my plans. And so, in essence, that's something that we all should pray every day. God, you know what? Help me to deny myself and take up my cross. Help me to follow your will, your ways, and not lean on my own understanding or do what I want to do. And so, in essence, Jesus here is in, in the garden, and he is praying over and over again, to align his will with God's will. And we need to do the same thing. We need to do the same thing. And so that's his petition number two. And in petition number three, in verse 44, it says, So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. It doesn't tell us the exact words that Jesus prayed this third time, but, but I guarantee that the one thing that he does pray, he prays for God's will to be done. He acknowledges it, accepts it, and he wants to act on it. He prays that, that for God's will to be done the third time, repeating it again. God, help me to align my will with your will. Help me to follow you no matter what. So those were, those were his petitions. And then let's notice the period of his prayer. In verse 40, it says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. So Jesus tells us that his first time of prayer was about an hour. He went away for an hour to pray, and we know that the disciples, they were asleep when he came back. And, and it's, it's safe to assume that uh, uh, those three times of prayer probably were about three hours. And, and although... Jesus was busy praying. We know the disciples weren't busy praying, were they? Uh, they, they were getting some rest. Uh, and so as we look at the, this period of prayer, it's, 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 it's important to note that Jesus spends a considerable amount of time communicating with his father on this difficult evening in his life. He invests some quality time communicating with God. His world is quickly falling apart. His friends are deserting them. The cross is coming. And he pauses for a long period of time to pray. He spent some significant amount of time in prayer. As I was looking at Jesus' prayer this week here in, 
Matthew 26, some questions came to mind that were challenging to me. First question is this. How do we approach God in prayer? You know, Jesus approached him with, with a, a posture of, of submission. But do we approach God in prayer with that posture of submission, or do we approach him with a posture of superiority? Are our prayer times simply us telling God what we want him to do? Like, God, I have this under control. I know what's best. Uh, This is my plan. Just work everything out according to it. We'll be fine. Do we approach God with a a posture of of submission? God, your will be done. Your, your, Your will over anything else. I submit to you. I want to follow you. Or do we come to him with superiority, like we have it all figured out? God, just, just work my plan for me. How do we approach God in prayer? Second question, what are our prayers focused on? Are our petitions for our will to be done or for us to recognize and obey God's will? Is it all about me and what I want or is it about God and what he wants? And how do we teach our kids to pray? How do they see us pray? Is it just our, in essence, Christmas list that we're going down, God, if you could do this, and if you could do that, and if you'd work here, if you'd give me this, if you'd provide that. And and those aren't wrong in and of themselves. But if we never pause and realize that God's will is sometimes uh, different than our will, but his will is always better than our will, then we're going to run into some issues. And the final question I was thinking about was, how often do we pray? Do we spend significant amount of time in prayer, communicating with our our loving Heavenly Father, or do we just wait to when we're faced with one of those worst nights of our lives? And then in the midst of the difficulty, we cry out and plead to God to help us get through. But when things are going great, we're just kind of on cruise control. I'm good, God. I'll I'll, I'll be in touch when things go bad. Do we spend quality time with God in prayer? Jesus did on the worst night of his life. He prayed for God's will to be done. He, He humbly came before his father and ask that his will be aligned with God's will. So that was Jesus' prayer. And the final thing we're going to look at is is the power that Jesus displayed. In verse 45, chapter 26, the, the last part of that verse, we see these words that Jesus speaks. It says, Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As I look at this, this, this verse, uh, the first thing that ke- comes to mind is Jesus basically says, look, here comes my betrayer. As Jesus was, was talking to Peter, James, and John, he spots the mob of men coming toward him led by Jesus. I mean, led by Judas. He, he spots that, that mob. And he says to them, the hour has come, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of sinners. At that moment, it's clear Jesus understood that he was going to be arrested. 
That, that this was the beginning of the end, that his journey to the cross was in its final stages. And look how Jesus responds in spite of all of that. He says very boldly, rise, let us go. Rise, let us go. Jesus now seems poised to face the longest day of his life that would end with his death on the cross. And I find those, those few words very, very interesting because in Gethsemane, we see Jesus praying and he was conflicted. He was suffering. He was distressed. So he prayed for God's will to be done. And God answered his prayer and he gave him confidence. He gave him strength and he gave him determination to face the reality of the cross. So how did he go from being, being conflicted and suffering and distressed to confidence, strength, and determination? He prayed. He prayed, and because he prayed, and because he asked for God's will to be, to be done, because he asked basically, God, you know, I want, I want to fulfill your will. Give me the strength to do it. God supplied him with the power to get through it. God supplied him with the power to get through it. If you remember anything from this morning, remember this phrase. Prayer produced the power to persevere through the pain. That night in the garden, Jesus was praying, and, and he was praying to God, and, and prayer produced the power to persevere through the pain. Jesus clearly understood what it was going to take for our redemption, for us to be forgiven, for us to have a relationship with him. He understood the agony that he would face, and he prayed for power to get through. Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, once said this, the power of prayer can never be overrated. They who cannot serve God by preaching need not regret. If a man can but pray, he can do anything. He who knows how to overcome with God in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal. Last night, David Jeremiah tweeted this, Don't pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Don't pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. You know what? The reality is, is in this life, we're going to face some difficult. We're going to face some difficult nights. We're going to face some trouble. Let's follow Jesus' example here in Gethsemane. Let's pray for God's will to be done in all situations, that he would give us the power to persevere through the pain so that, that, so that we can pursue his will. Let's follow his example. When I look at Jesus and I, and, I, and I look at all that he went through, I, I, I love those, those last few words that he says there in verse 45. Rise, let us go. And it's clear from those words that, you know what, Jesus' will was perfectly aligned with God's will. And God enabled him to face whatever he was going to face those next few days. And he faced it for us so we could have a relationship with him. God supplied him the power. All of us come in here this morning and maybe we're experiencing one of the worst nights of our lives, so to speak, right now. Maybe we're dealing with a really difficult situation. Maybe we're distressed. Maybe we're troubled. And while we'd love to pray to God to take the pain away, maybe... Maybe he wants just to grow and challenge and, and, more, and mold and shape us through the pain. And if that's you this morning, we, we all can pray, God, give me the power 
to persevere through the pain. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm facing a difficulty, my first thing that I think about praying is, God, take it away. Take it away. And I'm thankful that in the garden, the night before the cross, that wasn't Jesus' prayer. He didn't say, take it away. He said, God, I understand what your will is. It's, it's the cross. Give me the power to endure it for your honor and glory, for our benefit. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look into your word and to learn from your word. Thank you for Jesus and his willingness to, to be our sacrifice for our sins. And thank you that in spite of In spite of the distress he was facing in the garden, he was willing to submit to your will, God, to follow your plan, and to die in our place for our sin. (coughs) Father, forgive us when we take that for granted. When we don't recognize the great cost that our salvation cost your son, Jesus. And Lord, we're just thankful for this example of prayer that you've given us in in Gethsemane. That when we face the pain of life, that we we can pray for your will to be done. For power to to go through any difficulty we might be facing so you can receive the honor and the glory. Father, forgive us when our prayers are so self-focused and so selfish and so small. Help us to pray for your will to be done no matter what, for power to faithfully fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen. talking about prayer. We just want to let you know that each and every week, um, one of us is always up front here. And uh, if you have something that has been a burden to you, a pain that you're dealing with, a difficulty you're dealing with, and you would like someone to pray with you, we're, we're up here and we'd love to spend some time praying with you. And, and this week as a, as a family, we can pray because BJ and Kathleen and, and Joe and, and uh, Tim Nicholas are, are, are going to travel to Brazil this week. And all that money that we raised for their trip, it's, it's this week. And we're gonna, we can pray as a family that God would give them safety, but God would use them mightily. That many of those students that would come to learn English and in the camp would, would, would come to know you as their Savior. So let's just pray for them this week. And let's pray that God, no matter what difficulty we might face, he'd give us the power to get through it. Have a great, great week. Thanks for being here with us this morning.